0: Welcome to the 236th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today I speak with Erica Lee and Madalena Marinari about their project, Immigrants in COVID America. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As of today, March 9th, 2021, there are 2,607,837 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. In the United States, The present death toll from COVID-19 is 527,389, and in Brazil, the death toll is 268,370. A way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is America's immigration system is a COVID super spreader. This was written by Eli M. Kahan and was published February twenty-six, two 2021 in Scientific American. In her teens, Leticia Sierra realized that the future she had envisioned was out of reach. Sierra who lived in San Diego fled her native Mexico after suffering multiple episodes of sexual abuse before her kindergarten year. But since Sierra was an undocumented immigrant, She was not eligible for military service, which she'd need to afford nursing school. I was blocked from pursuing my dreams, she says. Two decades later, Sierra's future was inverted once again. After being pulled over because her then-boyfriend was on the phone while driving, and after being searched without a warrant, the police found several tablets of Vicodin in Sierra's purse. A friend had given them to her for back pain. Within hours, Sierra was turned over to Immigration and Customs Enforcement, known as ICE, and deported to Tijuana. Desperate to come home and be with my two-year-old son again, she said, Sierra found her way back to San Diego. There, she, like many undocumented immigrants, lived a quiet life one block off Main Street, cleaning homes with her mother and paying her taxes for over a decade. Things changed again on January 16th of 2020. That morning after dropping her son off at the bus stop, Sierra found a dozen ICE officers waiting outside her home, undercover cruisers still running arrest warrant in hand. After she changed out of her pajamas, family watching, the officers cuffed her on the hood of one of the SUVs. Before she knew it, Sierra had been deposited at ICE's Ote Mesa Detention Center to await her immigration proceedings. And there she was waiting when COVID-19 hit. During the COVID 19 pandemic, detention centers have ranked among the most dangerous settings in which to live and work. Since March of 2020, ICE facilities have experienced some of the worst outbreaks of the virus. As of February 24th of this year, 2021, when this article was written, some 9,569 detainees in total had tested positive for COVID 19. About 10% of those tested have had the virus, a figure which was 17% higher than the general U.S. population. In the time since ICE began testing its detainees, a detainee has died of the virus nearly every month. This amount of suffering did not have to happen. These statistics, as they stand today, were not an inevitability. Rather, since March, at the federal level, ICE has enacted policies inconsistent with Centers for Disease Control and Prevention guidelines while conducting... While conducting arrests and raids that run afoul of public health recommendations, and at the facility level, ICE subcontractors have treated detainees with cruelty and callous disregard, while simultaneously evading local health department's recommendations and offers for help. First step ICE could have taken was to release detainees, especially those with medical conditions, making them vulnerable to the virus. Indeed, early modeling studies predicted that even amongst the most optimistic assumptions, Without widespread release of those under custody, detention centers would be a setup for disaster. However, as of late February, ICE had released only about 3,500 detainees vulnerable to the virus. Meanwhile, tens of thousands remain in government custody. In lieu of reducing detainee populations, ICE and its subcontracted operators could have constructed physical safeguards and instituted hygienic protocols within facilities to reduce the spread of the virus. Much as inherent challenges to containment of infectious diseases exist in crowded detention centers, as they do in other carceral settings like jails and prisons and congregant facilities like nursing homes and rehabilitation centers. Theoretically, these settings are amongst the most amenable to strict precautionary procedures. Yet clear inaction by ICE and its for-profit subcontractors has allowed the virus to run rampant. Since the outset, physicians have noted inconsistencies in ICE infection management policies that significantly differ from those set forth by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. These include policies for intake monitoring, grouped quarantine, and social distancing that failed to meet CDC guidance. The result, placing further stress on a system teetering on the verge of disaster and putting detainee lives at risk. After an officer at Ote Mesa contracted COVID-19 in March, staff began wearing protective equipment. This is in 2020. But detainees didn't receive masks for weeks, and those who ripped sleeves off T-shirts as stand-ins for the real thing were put in solitary for vandalism. In April, in order to receive masks, detainees were required to sign a waiver saying it wasn't our fault if we got sick, Sierra said, while they were verbally accosted. With ethnic slurs. By the May of last year, detainees were getting sick left and right. Sierra herself developed a fever, headache, severe fatigue, and blisters on her mouth and legs, but were denied tests since they did not meet criteria for COVID-19, Sierra said. Detainees with psychiatric symptoms, including a peer who seemed to be hallucinating, were put in four-point restraints. On May 6, 2020, Carlos Ernesto Escobar Mejia, a detainee living in the dorm next to Sierra died of COVID-19. They treated us like less than animals, Sierra said. Every night, I worried that I wouldn't wake up. As all of this was happening, emails obtained by immigrant defense advocates and the American Friends Service Committee indicate that officials on the other side of the bars were rejecting, ignoring, and avoiding San Diego Public Health Services recommendations, the SDPHS, San Diego Public Health Services That's the acronym that they use. Internal guidelines addressing PPE use established on April 1st did not require masks for staff or detainees in most circumstances, allowing officer discretion based on their scope of duties and as feasible. On May 19th, SDPHS guidance strongly urging facilities to test staff were rebuffed. Just so we're clear, at this point, we have no intention to mass test our staff. Assistant warden Joseph Romish replied to a request. It took until September 21st for the facility to discuss its COVID containment plan with SDPHS. It took until September 23rd for the facility to collaborate on testing. Decisions like this at Ote Mesa and many other facilities do not only put the health of staff and detainees like Sierra and Mejia in danger. Experts say that since detained individuals and staff exposed to the virus act as disease vectors outside the facility, Outbreaks in detention centers can be catastrophic for neighboring communities by rapidly overwhelming ICU capacity. California State Senator Scott Weiner has labeled ICE a known super spreader of COVID-19. On July 17, 2020, Sierra was released. While she's left Ote Mesa, it hasn't left her. She continues to have flashbacks, nightmares, and insomnia, and she hasn't left the immigration system either. She's in asylum proceedings and her court date got pushed back from November 4th of last year to April 24th this year. Her son is afraid whenever I leave the house that I won't come back, she said. If I had to go back, I don't think I'd make it out. Okay, let me introduce my guests for today. This is a conversation I've been greatly looking forward to. Let me introduce you to the America Lee is a Regents Professor of History at the Asian American Studies and in Asian American Studies and Director of the Immigration History Research Center at the University of Minnesota. Recently elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, she's the vice president of the Organization of American Historians and author of four award winning books, including most recently The Making of Asian America A History and America for Americans, A History of Xenophobia in the United States. America for Americans won an American Book Award and the Asian Pacific American Book Award for Literature, Asian Pacific American Award for Literature. It was also highlighted by the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the New York Public Library. as one of the most important books, illuminating the Trump era and informing essential issues in the 2020 election. Maddalena Marinari is... Associate Professor of History at Gustavus Adolphus College. She's written extensively on immigration, restriction, U.S. immigration policy, and immigrant mobilization. Her book, Unwanted, Italian and Jewish Mobilization Against Restrictive Immigration Laws, 1882 to 1965, came out in 2020, and this book explores Italian and Jewish mobilization against immigration laws from 1882 to 1965. She's a co-editor with Maria Cristina Garcia and Madalina Su, and she's one of the editors of A Nation of Immigrants Reconsidered, U.S. Society in an Age of Reconstruction, 1924 to 1965, which is an an anthology on the impact of immigration restriction in the U.S. in the 20th century. She is co-editor with Erica Lee of a forthcoming special issue of the Journal of American History on the 100th anniversary of the passage of the Emergency Quota Act of 1921, in the Immigration Act of 1924. Madalena Marinari and Erica Lee, thank you so much for your time today joining me on COVID Calls.
1: Thank you for having us. Thank you. I'd
0: like to start the way I usually do just to find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is looking like there. Erica, may I start with you on that, please?
1: Yeah, I'm calling from Minneapolis and we just got notification today the governor Uh, put out his uh, vaccination update that um, I guess we've reached 70% of all 65 year olds and older who have been vaccinated. So now they're moving on to the next stage. So not sure when a vaccination is in my future, but we're getting a bit closer and I'm, I'm seeing people out and about. Um, I, I think there's, there's definitely a light at the end of the tunnel for some.
0: That's some good news. Madalena, let me bring you in. Same question, where you're calling from and your take on the pandemic situation.
2: I'm I'm coming from Minnesota as well, but unlike Eric, I was in a big city. I live in a very small town in rural Minnesota, and precisely because of that, although no one has quite explained why, uh, rural areas seem to be doing better in uh, Minnesota, especially in terms of vaccinations. I am hopefully waiting, eagerly waiting for my turn, which according to the map that we received today, it's probably not gonna be until this summer, but I'm glad that everyone else is getting a vaccine.
0: Uh, Madalena, just to follow up a little bit, what's been the situation on your campus then? Have you been able to go back to campus or students were there throughout sheltering yeah, in place?
2: So we have been um, on campus, except for the first two weeks of each semester, we've actually been on campus. I teach hybrid. Uh, most of us teach either hybrid or online. And so I meet, I see my students at least once a week. Uh, at least so far, everyone seems to have uh, well be, be well behaving. <laughs> we actually don't have a very high um, caseload, so hopefully it, starts, it stays that way for the next two months, and then summer break is here.
0: Uh, Erica, I just wanted to get an update from you on campus life there, particularly in big cities. It's been very hard um, for universities, I think, to manage the flow of students in and the impact that might have on neighboring communities, how has it been going there?
1: So it's interesting because we get messages from the administration um, and it's, it's, there's a lot of plans, there's a lot of protocols, there's a lot of information. I have been teaching remotely all year. Um, and so uh, that's been going well. But then when I do talk to undergraduate students and, and ask them, they'll say that I know more people who have had COVID who ha- than those who have not. And so mm-hmm. there's a gap. <laughs> there's a gap in, I think, the official numbers of, of infections sure. and cases, and then the reality of, of college students who are just trying to make it through the school year. And, and part of that does include socialization and, and probably not following the protocols um, like, like the university expects them to.
0: Well, you've both, you're both busy scholars ordinarily. And then COVID has, um, you've been extraordinarily productive in this time with a new project together. I'd like to start by asking you just a little bit about um, your prior work, your work before the pandemic year started, and Madalena, let me ask you first, because I'm particularly interested to see how you see that work now in light of the pandemic.
2: So I I think, I guess I'm I'm glad that I did a lot of research before the pandemic hit, (laughs) but for Erica and me, I think I distinctly remember having this conversation in uh, the fall of uh, 2016 when... Um, the election had happened, and we all sat around the table worrying that immigration might be coming to the forefront. And so we actually put together an immigration syllabus. Uh, we crowdsourced it so that it would be open source for everyone. Um, but we've also been uh, writing and speaking about this issue. And I think it's it's out of that long-standing concern that we came up with this um, project because we saw both the kind of rhetoric that was preceding about immigrants that was preceding the pandemic, but also some of the policies that were being implemented. In terms of my research, I think I've learned to pay even more attention to um, policymakers, but also try to identify um, the real consequences of these policies on regular people, but also how, immigrant groups try to respond. Uh, And so in in a way, I'm even more motivated to highlight these experiences um, with COVID.
0: Erica, let me ask you the the same question. Uh, You've published so many important books in this area. And I am curious, um, I mean, if you wanna say a, a little bit about the sort of enduring, challenges you see in that scholarship, unanswered questions, but then also sort of bring it into the stream of the pandemic for, for us a little bit. I'm, I'm always fascinated to talk to scholars who worked on a theme for a long time and then somehow the pandemic brings a new lens.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, so Madeleine and I are both historians um, and for, for us that means study of the past, but that is not enough. We are interested in how the past informs contemporary debates and understandings. And so we've be, we are part of a, a, you know, a new generation of scholars who are really responsive, like Madalena suggested um, or, or talked about, we, we were responding to the 2016 elections and the projected, and then it came true, you know, massive changes in immigration. And similarly with the pandemic, uh, Madalena and I knew, you know, that the emerging research was already showing that um, black, indigenous, immigrant, refugee, other people of color communities were, were already being disproportionately impacted by higher, infection, higher uh, risk to infection and then infection and mortality. And so, you know, we wanted to capture this moment in real time, to capture and document history in real time in order to facilitate uh, research, to facilitate um, uh, equity, um uh, responses to the pandemic and um and hopefully just you know create a larger public resource for for others uh in terms of you know my own research i had just finished a book on the history the long history of xenophobia in the united states it ended um with you know the the full trump administration um, and then the pandemic hit and even before infections had been reported in the United States, there were already these horribly racist tropes and sensationalist social media messages coming uh, from across the globe about the Chinese virus and how um, Chinese people and and Asians were were particularly um, super spreaders or sources of contagion. Um, And I, had a pit in my stomach um, thinking, you know, that it was just really going to be a matter of time until uh, we saw the impact here in the United States. Unfortunately, it's been much worse than I could have predicted. We're looking at over 3000 anti-Asian hate incidents in the past year with no signs of this letting up. So this has absolutely impacted uh, uh, my research, um, but also it's directly impacted um, the community from which I'm from.
0: I just want to follow up on that and, and both to what Madalena said and what you're saying, Erica. In, uh, is immigrant, immigration history and the history of migrants, is that an area that tends to also make this demand of scholars to, to move into a more, you mm-hmm. haven't used the word activist, but a more active stance as a scholar, because I think when people tend to think about the historical profession, particularly as it's been practiced in the United States, they think of it as a relatively conservative discipline compared to maybe even other humanities and social science disciplines. I'm curious your sort of sense of the field or is this been a turning point since 2016? It's become a more activist space for scholars. Erica, let me ask you that first and then Madalena bring you in.
1: I think scholars of migration have always been, at the forefront of advocacy work um, and been involved in public conversations and policy debates, the generation of scholars ahead of of us were certainly part of those those political discussions. Um, But as the field of immigration history, which was founded mostly around the study of European immigrants, as that has expanded to include um, Asian Americans, um, Black Americans, um, uh, Latinx peoples. It has taken on more of an ethnic studies um, perspective, which has does include activist roots, uh, and so I think that's part of the trend in the scholarship. But I do think that something did change in 2016, where I think it wasn't just immigration historians. It was, it was climate uh, <laughs> climate scientists. It was, um, it was feminists. It was it was so many different um, groups and, and scholarly communities that um, wanted to combat disinformation and to um, to play more of an advocacy role. Um, but immigration historians, I think, I'm proud, you know, to have been part of this um, part of this movement.
0: Madalena, let me just bring you in on that on that same question um, around sort of the the temperament of that. Um, of the discipline and the and the subfield, because I think you know your reaction, and we're going to turn here in a second to talking about your project you're working on together, immigrants and COVID America. That to me seems like the kind of thing I wish we had had in every subfield in history coming into the pandemic. That we're having to build these things in real time um, seems to me incredibly difficult, incredibly necessary.
2: I I I want to follow up on what Erica said, but yes, I think we felt. In part because immigration had been so front and center in the previous four years, it was, I think it would have been neglectful, irresponsible of us not to do anything and not to try to capture these experiences as they were unfolding, Uh, especially because I remember Erica and I having this call in April, fearing that things might actually get really bad. And unfortunately, we were right to so many so many levels. But um, I, I do think that in part because uh, the larger field of immigration history has, has moved on really tracing the history of um, racialization, and mass incarceration of immigration re- immigration restriction. It's almost inevitable that if you study those tr- historical trends, you almost feel an ethical obligation to try to make a difference right now. Uh, and so I think a lot of us have um, participated in amicus briefs, for example. Uh, we have talked to, to anyone who wants to listen, trying to give a, a historical perspective. Um, and, but also, I think the other piece of this that was really important for us was to humanize this issue because around immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers, because the last four years have really dehumanized these populations um sorry go ahead erica
1: no i wanted to make sure you were finishing i'm okay. go
2: ahead i sorry
1: um i i just wanted to add one more um important piece of context both of us are calling from minnesota um and of course over the summer we are the the match that lit the fire around a global reckoning over race and racial disparity, racial justice, racial equity. Um, And I think that for us, many of the emerging um, projects like um, the Atlantic's COVID racial data tracker or um, Harvard University did a a great guide on black America and COVID-19. These were some of the projects that helped inspire us to, to do the same. Um, so I think there's, you know, there's just many different um, um, sources, you know, f- uh, sources of inspiration for us. But I, but I did want to, you know, make sure to mark that, um, you know, for us here in Minneapolis and Minnesota, the police trial of, you know, Derek Chauvin and the George Floyd murderers is, is happening right now, uh, and this has um, certainly been a, a factor in. Uh, the way in which um, we have developed this project, but also how we approach, approach these issues of, of equity during the pandemic.
0: Just a reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls and I'm talking with Madalena Marinari and Erica Lee about immigration history. And I'm gonna start talking now about this project they've been working on. Madalena, let me turn to you first. The project is called Immigrants in COVID America. And you have a number of different sort of tracks within the project. And I'd like to talk about each of them. Um, One of them is around workers. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about that. Maybe let me back up one step and just sort of ask you about sort of the scope of the project, what kinds of things does it do? Um, And then focus in a little bit on this this labor and worker issue. I think the term essential worker is one that we're going to be grappling with for a long time. It has an inheritance of work that has often been deemed second class, is inherently dangerous. Now it's been termed essential, but there's a lot of politics around whether or not essential has met safe. So that's a lot to hand you, but I'm interested about the project and also this particular theme, Elena.
2: Yeah. So last spring, as I mentioned, I, Eric and I were having a conversation and we were seeing trends that were troublesome, but also we worried about leaving a record for posterity, but also creating a starting place for researchers, um, activists, artists, anyone interested in this topic to draw information from. And so we actually had long conversations about which issues to focus on. Um, And so we we chose these four, which is immigration policy, uh, um, the economy, health, anti-Asian xenophobia, and then eventually we actually added, and it's not on the website yet, uh, vaccine and equity uh, and that's been a really interesting development, especially in terms not just of access, but disinformation among some of the communities that we're interested in uh, tracking. Um, and so we expected that the immigration uh, section would be extensive, um, but tracking how many little changes the Trump administration carried out in the name of COVID was both interesting and demoralizing because uh, essentially the immigration policy brought um, any kind of immigration in the United States to a halt because there was not an aspect of immigration that was not affected by it and so that's when if you follow the story you realize that the pandemic became an excuse to carry out an agenda that had been there all along but and they gave it an opportunity essentially to do that and I think Undoing the damage, I know there is a lot of, about that in the media right now, undoing the damage that has been done uh, in the last four years, but especially over the last year, is gonna take a long time, especially because it has created certain um, ideas about what immigrants, refugees, and Israelis uh, should do, should expect, uh, uh, the their kind of rights they're entitled to. Um, and so really we wanted a depository, a collection, a curated collection of different kinds of sources, um, multimedia, but also a short description so that people can access and use the information for whatever purposes it serves them, right? When it came to labor in particular, things became really interesting in part because of the terminology surrounding them, right? Uh, These essential workers hailed as uh, heroes at the beginning of the pandemic, and of course that phase has ended. Um, But even though the the rhetoric never quite matched the practice, right, because oftentimes these people had a choice between going to work and uh, catching COVID because they were not provided, offered adequate protection or losing their job. Right. And that's really not a fair option for them. Um, but this, we know now that these people have been at the forefront, not just of keeping our lives going, our economy going, but also at the forefront of the number of infections that they, So the, the, for example, in Minnesota, uh, some of the um, workers in uh, meat fact- factories have had really high rates of infection, not just at the personal level, but also in their families and their um, communities. And so um, I think... The 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 kind of documentation that we've done around workers really shows the tension and the hypocrisy between um, hailing these people for making a huge sacrifice Mm -hmm. so that we can stay home and be safe, and really our inability to provide for them. Right now, that in some of the states, for example, that um, have lifted the mask mandate. Uh, just in Texas the other day, some of the uh, a Mexican restaurant um, w- became the uh, target of a very high, a very negative media campaign and because they weren't wanted to enforce the mask mandate and people threatened they call ice on them, right? Um, so. Uh-oh. Madalena,
0: let me just follow up on one part of that because there's a convergence here, which I think is, is I'd like you to help explain if you can. As you said, um, I think it's a powerful idea that there, there were already immigration restrictions and plans for further restriction throughout the Trump administration and before, um, but certainly in the Trump administration that the pandemic provided an excuse a cover to go further, but then bringing in the layer of labor, it seems to me that's that's a compounding force because then the work site also becomes a, to apply restriction pain uh, to make it harder for people who are in the country, many of whom legally, um, to make it harder for them um, to stay or to want to stay or to want to encourage others and their families to come. It's right. an added layer of restriction, which I think has gone, that layer has gone unnoticed or un, unanalyzed. I wonder if you could speak to it.
2: No, definitely. And I, I wanted to mention something, well, two, two things to just give an illustration. Part of the issue that sometimes gets lost in this conversation is that immigrants don't some immigrant communities have, are overly represented in, in certain jobs, right? And so for example, one of the things, one of the stories that we've captured is that um, in the uh, Filipino American community, uh, where a lot of women are nurses, they have an incredibly high um, death rate, right? And, and it's because, and so it's, it's not about just about closing the opportunities, but also, um, the high, the, the long-term impact on, on this community because Im- immigrants are often relegated to specific jobs. I think in, in terms of policies, um, I this is the first time in a hundred years that I can think of where the administration actually believed that families should not be together, should not be allowed to reunite, right? Um, and the pandemic really... Give them an opportunity to carry that forward, just for, uh, not just for uh, in, immigrants, but both legally and illegally in the country. But there is also, I, I guess, a little piece of good news. Uh, it, there was also the discussion around um, becoming a public charge. So using any kind of uh, help, uh, whether that's um, food stamps or Medicaid, which the Trump administration wanted to argue that would disqualify you from applying for naturalization and then citizenship, which was the, that, that would have been, that would have had a devastating, um, right. consequences. And it seems that the, the Biden administration is going to finally drop that. But, uh, I think that's just two examples of how the intersection of, uh, xenophobia The pandemic and labor has really wreaked havoc on on these communities, both in terms of uh, the livelihoods, but literally staying alive and being able to reunite with their families.
0: Let's talk about the track of, of xenophobia and violence here. Erica, you're the author of America for Americans, a history of xenophobia in the United States, which, as I pointed out earlier, has been flagged as a book essential to understanding the Trump era, usually when historians' work is flagged as essential for understanding a time period, it's to say, oh, that's great. It's good to understand this time. That was almost a a warning, though it seemed like. People needed this book to understand what was unfolding before their eyes. And and as was mentioned um, from the very beginning, Trump racialized the pandemic. And then rather than letting it drop, that became a big part of his electoral strategy I wonder if you could take us, again, you said you felt a pit in your stomach when this started to unfold. Talk to us a little bit about that book in in light of the year.
1: (laughs) Yes, Um, right. How how to Make a Really Depressing Topic Even More Depressing. Even
0: worse. Um,
1: Right. That's that's kind of my job on this (laughs) podcast. So thank you for helping. That's right, right. You know, there's a there's a couple of trends. One is the long-standing history of of connecting immigrants with disease, whether it be Italians or Jews or even Germans in the 18th century. Um, but there is a really deep and enduring history connecting and racializing Chinese people, in particular as sources of contagion. They're a great example, <laughs> not great. There are very telling examples in our history. Uh, including the 1900, bu- 1900 bubonic plague outbreak in San Francisco where, where Chinatown was essentially quarantined. Um, you know, so that's the long history. Uh, and it continues through the HIV AIDS crisis, through SARS, through MERS. Um, but the pit in the stomach, you know, was, was stemming from not only this historical knowledge, but also the very current uh, understanding of, of our former president and um, his very successful use of xenophobia, um, talking about how the wall will keep out the virus, um, talking about how we need to, um, you know, stop immigration to keep out the virus. Um, so, you know, what happened again, even before infection rates Uh, rose in the United States was a a global um, anti-Chinese sentiment that is deeply rooted in in many uh, countries' histories. Um, But that really caught fire in two ways. One is with um, President Trump and many conservative lawmakers' consistent and unabashed use of the terms China virus, Wuhan virus, Kung flu, very strategically. Um, to inflame, to deflect attention at the federal government's mismanagement of the pandemic. And then also the role of social media. You know, researchers have been able to track that every time the president used one of those terms, it would get retweeted 800% more. Um, And so this was the, you know, in those early months this was the dominant way in which Americans came to understand the virus as a foreign thing, as something from China, and as something that was China's fault. Um, he doubled down on that message during the, the election. Um, and, and in that way, you know, continued to use that same divisive political rhetoric, the demonization, the, um, the incitement, to um, to violence that we then saw um, on January 6th for Asian American communities, not just Chinese, but for Asian and Pacific American communities, the, the result has been um, disastrous. The, the number and very well um, uh, reported um, number of hate incidents has been um, nothing like we've seen before. Uh, Eighteen hundred percent than a rise than the year before in some places like New York City a twenty six hundred percent increase, um, so this really is a, a crisis point and the there you know there are very there are many tragic aspects to this but one is the the further um, tragedy that this place is on say Asian American Pacific Islander healthcare workers who are already you know, placing their lives at risk. They're at the front lines, they're disproportionately um, impacted and part of our public health response who then face anti-Asian discrimination as they're going to work or leaving work. And then the other aspect is how xenophobia generally um, has made it much more difficult for contact tracers to um, to trace the chain of infection amongst immigrant and refugee communities who are fearful of what the government is going to do with that information. And now we're seeing reluctance um, to to get vaccinated. So, you know, one of the things I always like to point out is that xenophobia is not just something that targets immigrants and refugees. It actually impacts and hurts all of us. And there's you know, no better way of, of seeing this than in a pandemic when we need to contract trace and now we need to vaccinate everybody. This is uh, just a real shame and it didn't have to be this way. It, it just multiplied the, the disruption and the cost of lives um, of the pandemic even more than, than it had to. It, it's, it's, I think, just a real tragedy.
0: I want to underline that connection you're making there and thank you for making it and I'm learning from you in the way you're articulating it which is that if you just try to put xenophobia in a box and say this is one phenomena of the pandemic year you're going to miss a much broader phenomena which has real health impacts one of my concerns is that those health impacts and this probably comes back to your project are very poorly documented so we have these sort of aggregate statistics and we have you know maybe as the this year goes on we'll get better Um, statistical accounting from the agencies we usually turn to, to trust in that regard. But these kind of things you're talking about, impact on Asian American and Pacific Islander um, health worker communities, fear uh, that people might have just going to the supermarket or going to the street or going to the health clinic, those are health impacts which are embedded within this culture of hate and violence. I don't know how you untangle that it's more of a statement than a question, but I, I'm wondering how you ap- approach that or what your sort of how this project can be an intervention in that regard, because I think we need it.
1: I, I mean, I think you, you put it very, uh, very well. You know, we, um, we've realized the pandemic has made us understand that we are more connected to each other, that our well being is more dependent on each other than we ever could have imagined. When you don't wear your mask, that puts me at risk. When you're not vaccinated, that puts me at risk. And if there's some other political force that is um, hindering you from from going to the health clinic, from getting vaccinated, that puts me at risk. So, you know, if it takes uh, an appeal to our selfish um, desire, to stay healthy just ourselves. <laughs> if that's what it takes to, to combat xenophobia, then, then you know, I'm all for it. You know, anything that can um, break down some of these barriers and walls, but then hopefully have a longer lasting impact uh, you know, after the pandemic gets more contained is, is what the goal should be.
0: Erica, just one more follow-up in what you're saying. And then, Madalena, I want to come to you and find out a little bit more about some of the stories that have been generated in this project. But um, I don't like to give Trump too much credit, but I have a causality question for you, Erica, because you know I think back to September 11 and the wave of anti-Muslim hatred that swept across the United States with, with real violence, not just words. And I think you could go back and look and if you read Bush closely, you can find some, some catalyst, some catalytic language, but nothing in the order of what Trump has done. So there was already that impulse at that time that emerged even without a president fanning the flames. Now we come to 2020 and Trump is, as you say, he's not only just fanning it, he's leading it. So how, how strong is the effect of a president? How do you sort of solve for the, the Trump, solve for T in this in this regard? You know, how important are the words of a of a president, a single person, in this sort of causality of xenophobia? I'm I ask you this because I'm puzzling over this myself and trying to figure out how much of that pandemic year is Trump or how much of it is is always there, sort of hidden in plain sight for immigrant communities, obscured for non-immigrant communities, and then it it emerges.
1: It's both, and and one cannot work without the other. So to be to be clear, it hasn't just been name calling. it That's what's happening to Asian Americans. There have been um, physical attacks. There have been murders. Um, so it it's not just a it's not just people being sensitive to being you know targeted with derogatory um, phrases. Um, Xenophobia is always there. You know, that was the lesson of my, my deep dive into history. But, and it's not just one president. It's not just a president. It is this president. This president who was able to rally you know, a deeply loyal and deeply um, impassioned, um, passionate uh, response who did not respond well to facts to be honest, you know, um, to, uh, to complexities. (laughs) um, They were, um, they were uh, very much, that acted very much like a, like a lynch mob, you know? And, and so with that power, with that power to activate such a passionate response came, came the danger, Um, you know? So, so Bush did, try to placate the emerging anti-Muslim sentiment. His words mattered, you know, that that was a very important response. The government, his administration, did something very different, Uh, did start to survey and arrest and deport South Asian and Muslim and Arab Americans. So we can't let him off the hook. But Trump is both a continuation of a trend, but, but an extreme version of this, of this um, um, political passion and activation that has had you know, really poor consequences for, for many communities.
0: There's it's a lesson there from a, a great historian about multi-causality. Madalena, let me bring you in on this.
2: I was, I was gonna say that it, I, at the same time, it also shows the fragility of our democracy, right? That one person Um, could tap into these deep-seated strands of xenophobia that have over a century's history, right? Um, I think one big lesson that um, I often think about, what what do I want people to take away from this um, project? Uh, And perhaps my, my biggest hope is that we can't move past COVID January 6th the racial tensions of this past year without really admitting that we have a problem, right? Uh, And without recognizing the history behind this um, racial injustice, behind the unequal treatment, um, and quite frankly, the the willingness to ignore how this um, virus is devastating some communities more than others, right? Um, we we can't just, once we're all vaccinated and we're gonna come back to normal, whatever normal means, we can't just say, okay, let's move on. Um, these things are all interconnected and we're, they're gonna repeat themselves if we don't acknowledge that they didn't come out of nowhere, right? Uh, my students always, like to say, history repeats itself. It's like, that's not true. It builds on itself. We got here mm. for very specific reasons because things happen in the past. And if we keep ignoring that, um, we are bound to repeat these mistakes.
0: Madalena, let me, let me just stay with that for a second because I share your concern that, and it's a, it's a bind that we find ourselves in, that the vaccine is going to save lives. No, what we want that. Obviously, but I'm, I'm very worried, and the United States has a terrible history of this, that when as a disaster reaches some point of closure, usually when it falls off the front page of the newspaper, it's not commanding as much media attention. There's a desire to not only sort of push the history aside, but rewrite the history or unwrite the history so that th- these kinds of concerns we're talking about in this conversation don't become as important as we look back, as they, as they look to us now. And I wonder again, I mean, your project, Immigrants in COVID America is an intervention in that space, but what else could be necessary? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about K through 12 curricula here, other kinds of spaces, which are also part of democracy, democratic mm-hmm. action, um, where we won't let go of this right. moment. I agree with you, a reckoning is necessary, but I'm not sure what form it takes. And I'm worried that time is slipping away.
2: Well, I'm I'm going to be selfish. Bring back the humanities, especially history, right? Uh, I mean, part of the problem, I don't mean to be obvious, but killing the study of humanities, defunding them, is a problem, right? Because studying history is not just about learning facts and names and dates, it's about gaining critical skills and analytical thinking. And quite frankly, questioning authority, right? Uh, And not trusting what everyone, what anyone tells, you know, even the president of the United States, right? And kind of saying, okay, what are are the motives here? Why is this rhetoric, anti-immigrant rhetoric being used right now? What is it that we're not being told? How is it being deployed? Uh, I I mean, I think education is definitely a centerpiece of this. I also think that... um, while the virus might wane, um, there are long term consequences and unintended consequences that we cannot even predict. Uh, I mean, in general, I'm, I'm thinking about what has done uh, to women in the labor force. And we also, I mean, it'd be interesting to see, I, I, I live this pandemic through two worlds, right? The Italian, my family back home, um, and the United States, where we, you know, Italy has childcare the United States has women, right? (laughs) I mean, if this doesn't create some momentum to create some childcare and help for families, I don't know honestly what will. And I think the communities that Erica and I have been tracking are even more victims of this inequality in terms of childcare, uh, healthcare um, access that, uh, and so I, while I I think that there is going to be, the sentiment of going on, of moving on and leaving this behind us as historians, we just cannot let that happen. Um, and I hope, right. That, um, institutions of higher education K through 12 will work towards that.
0: Um, seems like one of the most powerful tools historians have is collecting and mobilizing first person narratives. And I know that's a a feature of your, product. Uh, Erica or Madalena, either of you want to talk to it. Um, First, this um, part of the project around stories from the pandemic I thought was quite interesting. I wonder if you might tell us a little bit about this part of the project.
1: Yeah, um, I'll I'll start. This is a partnership between the Immigration History Research Center and the Sahan Journal. Um, Sahan Journal is a nonprofit digital uh, news Um, organization based in the Twin Cities that has a sole mission around reporting on immigrants and refugees. They are a really phenomenal resource and we've been so pleased to be able to partner with them and highlight some of these stories from the pandemic. Um, I hope that listeners and viewers will will go especially to this section of our site because there's some just Phenomenal first person stories. And I'd love to just highlight one story, which is the story of, of Minneapolis um, teacher Miriam Mohammed. She talks about how it has been such a struggle to be a, a teacher, you know, during this time period, but also how her particular refugee background as a refugee from Somalia has provided extra insight into both the Uh, the additional um, hardships of her students, but also the the whole, the ways in which this has impacted the entire family. So she talks about how when she was growing up, she was often the one who was the translator for her parents, um, helping her parents study for their citizenship test. So she was doing the homeschooling, you know, for her own parents. And when she is online with her students now, she is seeing how her you know young students are struggling on their own how the elder siblings are taking the role of the parents and helping with the homework because the parents are essential workers and are not at home um, to, to do that work and so she's she sees this in both the inequality you know of the situation for for her students but also um, it reminds her of how um, You know, for for immigrant and refugee students, the whole educational process in the United States has been one of of inequality even before the pandemic. Um, She's doing her part. She also has written two um, children's books to help shine a light on the Somali um, refugee experience. Um, and so this is just one of the stories that, that we're highlighting to examine the impact, the really varied impact of the pandemic on on immigrants and refugees.
0: Madelina, did you want to uh, contribute one or, or reflect a little bit on the sort of power of these first-person narratives in the project?
2: I think that's going to be crucial. That was always part of... Um... idea. It's like we want to track the coverage, but we also want to bring uh, stories. Personally, I plan on uh, using um, immigrant stories, a template that professors can use in their classes to, in every single class I will teach, to document immigrant stories through the pandemic. Uh, I I think this is the only way not to forget, but also to uh, keep these experiences alive. And create a record for future um, researchers as
0: well. So just, uh, we're almost up on time. And I want to just give you each a, a chance. We've covered a lot of ground here. And I can't wait to dive more into this project myself and use it with, with students. Um, anything else you wanted to highlight? Or wh- how long do you see? What's the time horizon of this project? I assume it goes beyond COVID. There's so many of these interesting sort of important archiving in the moment projects and they've got COVID in the title, but I can't help but wonder, you know, they're going to have to go beyond COVID because COVID is a disaster with no clear end in sight. Erica, how are you thinking about the next phase of the work?
1: The project as it exists online right now covers the first six months of the pandemic. In the next couple of months, months, we're going to update it so that we're covering the first full year. And then beyond that, Scott, I'm just not sure, I'm not sure whether we've got the capacity to keep on going, but you're absolutely right. You know, this is, um, I keep, I remember, (laughs) we all remember in December of 2020 when we were all saying, oh, we can't wait until 2021 when things get back to normal. And, um, you know, that was naive, obviously. And so, you know, now, as I said in the intro, there's a light at the end of the tunnel where there's a lot of positive news about vaccination. But as we've talked about today, you know, some of these major seismic shifts in our economy, our society, our our politics, and of course, our public health are, are just going to have um, repercussions for for a really long time, and we won't fully be able to understand the impact uh, for some time. But we hope that the work that we've done documenting in real time, um, the impact on immigrants and refugees will be a first step in helping Mm -hmm. all of us um, understand the long lasting legacies.
0: Madalena, the last word to you uh, and come back to a little bit full circle where we started that, as historians become active in interpreting the now, while I also do the other work of interpreting the past, it's doubled your workload, um, but it's crucial. Your sort of final thoughts about this project as it goes forward.
2: Yeah, so like Erica, I'm not quite sure what the future holds for us, but I know that we're both committed to uh, seeing it through and continue advocating uh, and not letting kind of like we're going to be writing about this, uh, even the, um, the issue of the Journal of American History, we have an epilogue that will include some of this and some of the findings. And that's a way for us to bring attention to historians now and in the future that uh, this, is, this is a resource. But I also, my, my biggest hope is that uh, we continue contributing personal stories, um, because those are often the ones that get lost or purged from the record. So if nothing else, that is something that I'm committing myself to doing. in the copious amounts of time I have, of course. But um, Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Just a reminder, you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. And a programming note, we will be having more COVID Calls also at 5 p.m. Korea time. Uh, coming up in the in the weeks to come tomorrow 5 p.m eastern time i'll be talking with historian chris white and his project uh the covid in appalachia podcast so please do join me for that and i just want to thank my guests today madalena marinari and erica lee for this really insightful hour thanks for all the work you're doing and uh we really appreciate your time today
1: thank you so much
0: stay healthy everybody see you tomorrow five o'clock Thank you.